Hello. Welcome to Part in the Sound podcast. On today's episode, I had Kevin Bowe. He is a engineer, producer, songwriter out of the Minneapolis music scene. He started in the 70s with bands he played in. From there, he started writing music for acts like Johnny Lang. He wrote for Etta James on a record that won some Grammys. Um, his whole history, I was able to get a sense of Minneapolis from the 70s till now. And it was just a great conversation to have about songwriting, technique, and just theory in general of what makes music great. Um, Kevin's got a lot to tell. He's an advocate for learning. He was a teacher of mine in college. And um, well, this is probably my favorite interview I've done so far. So I hope you enjoy it too. Let's go. I usually just shoot from the hip and start going. Um, no problem. But, you know, generally. So, all right. So, you've managed to, whether you are aware of it or not, cause me to do homework again. <laughs> um, I, Oops. You're right, you're right. I never wanted to do homework again after college, and here I am. Uh, I have Kevin Bow here. Um, you've produced a whole bunch of stuff. You've recorded a bunch of stuff, and you've written a lot, of, wrote a lot of stuff. Um, and we're in your studio, the Kill Room. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And we're just kind of going to discuss, um, well, I generally kind of like to go all the way back to the start. So in my homework, I've learned that when you started with music in the 80s is where I'm starting. You were in a band called The Dads. I was. um Actually started in the 70s because I started playing guitar in high school, junior high. And that's that's the part that's tough to trail, figure out about Thank you. God. Um, Pre-internet. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad there's no documentation of that. All I have is a couple of pictures. Yeah. <clears throat> that you're never going to see. Yeah. But um, I had a Les Paul and a Fender Twin and some friends, and it was just, uh, you know, playing Rolling Stone songs and mm -hmm. songs by The Who. And stuff like that uh, never occurred to me to be uh, to write or sing. I right. just wanted to be a guitar player. Pete Townsend from The Who was my first uh, inspiration for for picking up a guitar. That's why I bought a Les Paul. Sure, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how how long of just kind of you know jamming with the guys and playing uh, you know Pete Townsend licks or mm -hmm. whatever it was? <laughs> how long was it before you find yourself? Um, you know, in a band like, you know, the dads or whatever ends well, up being. Well, at the end of high school, I had developed, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, actually, I don't regret it, uh, a severe drug problem <laughs> because it was the 70s. And sure. uh, in my defense, I would like to point out that all the other kids were doing it. So at the end of high school, um, I went into rehab and this kid in rehab, this weird kid named Jeff, I forgot his last name, he had the Ramones first album. Okay. And this is 1979. And uh, it made a big impression on me. I was kind of depressed about music because I'm a big fan of like uh, the free-spirited rock and roll up until 1976. Okay. But in 1976, there was kind of a major a sea change in rock music where it kind of shifted from 
being all these weird bands that kind of invented themselves with no rules. Um, you know, like weird bands like like Led Zeppelin. I mean, Led Zeppelin's yeah. a weird band. There's no Led Zeppelin before Led Zeppelin, and they obviously it's not calculated. They did just kind of made it up. But after 1976, you had some bands that were more careerist. Maybe I felt like a little less basement and a little less garage and a little more boardroom. Mm -hmm. Things like um, Foreigner and Journey and stuff like that. And not to knock those bands, because I can see, especially now that I'm older, the value in, in what they do. But it just didn't appeal to me as much. I missed the, the wildness. Mm -hmm. um, so I was feeling a little um, kind of uh, lost. And also uh, drugs, which were awesome when I first started doing them, turned out to be not that awesome for mm. me because I'm an addict. So um, I was ready for a change. Yeah. And when I heard that Ramones album, it just blew my head apart. Um, took me a while to figure out, like, why do I like this? These guys are so bad, <laughs> you know? And then after like the I... Bad, bad, like, just raw, like, bad playing? or Yeah, bad compared to Journey. Yeah, yeah. But, so why do polished. I love the Ramones and I don't care if I don't want to listen to Journey, you know? And I'm just using Journey as an example. I, again, I'm not knocking them. They're right. extremely talented. It's just not my cup of tea. So after I got out of rehab, they put me in this halfway house. And there were some real punk rockers in there. Um, and punk rock back then wasn't like just a fashion choice. I mean, it was a real thing. Um, Basically a lifestyle. Kind of. of I mean, there weren't very many of us. Right. And, like, if you had spiky hair and a leather jacket, if you were walking down Hennepin Avenue, a carload of jocks would stop and try and beat you up and stuff. So it was a, it was a kind of, it's different than it is now. These guys got, were a, a little bit older than me, and when they got out of the halfway house, it was like a six-month deal, they formed this band, The Dads, and when I got out, they asked me to be in the band. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time in Minneapolis, it was um, an amazing scene. There was only one bar. Okay. that would book punk rock, The Longhorn, downtown. And these guys just did a documentary on The Longhorn that I highly recommend people watch if you're interested in the history of uh, uh, indie music in, in Minneapolis. That's where it started. Okay. So that's how I got into that band. While you guys were playing, kind of the advent of Prince and that whole scene started happening, and you yeah. guys had the replacements. And correct me if I'm wrong, like who's, was it Husker Du at the time? The and, kings of the scene were the Suburbs, the Replacements, and Husker Du, and then there were some other bands right behind. The Suicide Commandos started it all. And right. interestingly, I just a couple of years ago produced the Suicide Commandos 40th anniversary album, and Dave the drummer, they're all good friends, mm -hmm. but Dave the drummer built my studio. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, he's a, he's amazing. So Comes full circle. My band, the Dads. Well, it wasn't my band. I was just in it, and we weren't very good. But we got to open for the Replacements and Who's Could Do, and this, we opened for the Suburbs a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And then I remember I was at a party one night. We opened for the Suburbs, and then I think Chan Poling, the leader of the Suburbs, had a party at an apartment he lived at. at I want to say like twenty seventh and first yeah and he was playing the dirty mind album oh, and again yeah. i had one of those moments where you just you hear this music and you go oh my god what what is this who is this mm -hmm. um so it was an amazing time i say from 1981 till 1987 or so in minneapolis uh musically because you had the most exciting things in the world happened to be coming out of minneapolis meaning Prince, uh, meaning replacements and Husker Du on the punk rock side, which were kind of the 
Beatles and the Stones of the, that second wave of punk rock, and then Prince on the other side taking over the world. Right. My favorite part about that Dirty Mind album is when you open up the liner notes, and it says recorded in a studio in Uptown. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Um, that's one of my favorite. I'm a big Prince fan. So. Me too. And the, I mean, huge. And yeah. uh, my wife worked for him for a few years, and um, I must have seen him 50 times. And the mystique. Yeah, it, exactly. Uh, 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 no matter how calculated that was, it's, it worked on me. Well, I, I'll tell you what. I was in a, not to tail off too far, but I was at a punk rock show at a little, you know, tiny bar. And I was helping my buddies load in one night. And this was five years ago, six years ago. The bartender comes up to us. Prince called. He's coming in tonight. Just a little. What club? It was called the Cause Sound Room. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's now the Iron Lake Door and, Bar. Lake and Lindale. Yes. Yeah. So we're sitting there. I'm helping my buddies load in. And the bartender says, yeah, Prince is coming in tonight. And we were like, what? And you say the mystique, and we were sitting there. When he got there, they roped off the back. It was him and I think one of the members of Third Eye Girl or sure. whatever. Um, and they were sitting there, and me and my buddy Kevin, he was like, dude, look, he's right there. And I was like, I can't. I yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Kevin, you look at him. I can't. Yeah. We, we just wanted to give him his Avert face. your and, gaze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's. I was playing at the Dakota several years ago with Allison Scott, and him and his entourage showed up. And we had sold the club out, and they had to turn them away. And I was like, oh, my God, can't we get rid of some of these white people so Prince can come see us play? Sweet oh my, Jesus. Oh, my God, that's funny. I would never in my wildest dreams imagine they would turn him away, but I suppose. Neither did I, but story of my life. Right, right, right. Well, that's interesting. Not to tail off, but I just I hear that, and it's interesting to me. Everyone in Minneapolis has a Prince story. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I got one iota of one which is mostly him sitting there and mostly us having anxiety that we're going to scare him out of the room so well in the early 80s you could go see him in the main room all the time and it was this is big they call it a secret concert but everyone just knew this pre-internet uh but sure the word would get out prince is playing first avenue tonight and it would be prince and the time and vanity six and just up there just jamming and having fun endlessly yeah and then you could like go over into the small room into seventh street entry and uh, like the replacements or Husker Du would be playing. And I don't think there's any way, because I was young and stupid, to realize that I was in a magic place at a magic time. But looking back, I know, I see that now, and I feel so lucky and grateful to have been able to just be in the room and see those things, because people don't get to see that. No. You and I, we, we've brought up uh, Eilish a few times since we've been sitting here chatting. You do, Once she's big, she's big. The internet makes it all happen so fast that I don't think you can even now see these sorts of things coming. And not that you could then, but... Yeah, I didn't know. Um, I just thought, oh, this is what music is. It's is... like, no, man, this is Prince and the Replacements and Who's Could Do. These are th shows that people are going to be talking about for, you know, ever and ever and ever, you know. Um, so it had a big influence on me. Yeah, no doubt. So when you guys are playing together in the dads, opening up for some of those bigger bands like The Replacements here and there, how long did that go then? I think I was in that band for about three years. Okay. <laughs> we had this song. I wasn't involved in the writing in the beginning. Like I said, I just wanted to be a guitar player. We had this very charismatic lead singer named Sean. Mm -hmm. who I, I still I like him a lot. He was very funny. Mm -hmm. um, that was the whole thing about the dads. We weren't that good, but we were kind of funny. Yeah. And he, one of our more popular songs that he wrote was called I Don't Want to Join the Army. Yeah. 
Then he quit the band to join the army. Oh my god. That's what I said. <laughs> so then I started writing and singing, not out of any desire to do that, but just out of a more practical, like, well, somebody has to do this, and I don't want to trust somebody else because they might quit to join the army. Yeah. So, um, right. and then we weren't that we weren't good anymore because we were, like I said, we were never that good, but we were funny. And after Sean left, we weren't funny anymore. We were like trying to be serious, and it just wasn't wasn't happening. But I did it. I think we probably hung on for another year, year and a half, or something like that, if I remember okay. right. And then it um, that that was that. So, so when you start finally writing and you do it for that spell of time with them and then afterwards, how do you keep writing or decide to just keep writing? Cause obviously did you end up in another band or did you just yeah. write for yourself? Or I started another band with this, uh, woman that I still work with today of just lovely, beautifully talented cellist mm-hmm. named Michelle Kinney. And I was at that point, I was super into this kind of psychedelic revival music that was going on, psychedelic furs, Echo and the Bunnymen, and a lot of the Paisley Underground stuff coming up out of California, sure. Rain Parade, um, bands like that. And um, so we started this band doing that kind of stuff, and that's when I started um, trying to get more serious as a writer and a singer. Um, I wore my influences on my sleeve way too much. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't do like some people where I sang and people were singing in British accents. That's oh kind my of gosh. Yeah, yeah, I didn't go that far, but I was very imitative and um, not very original. Um, and at that point, I think my songwriting was still, I was songwriting not as a songwriter, but as a, we need songs for my... At that point, when you're writing just for your band, are you kind of pigeonholed into the idea that you had, like, if you're a punk band, you... Well, you're yeah, you're right. Punk punk, yeah, I pigeonholed myself because I was very myopic at that point in time. My only goal was to get a band together that got a record deal. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I was, for me, I was barking up the wrong tree because that's not my strength. Right. If I was going to be a rock star, I would have been a rock star by then. Um, so I was still kind of misguided about, um, I always say, it's good to have a dream, but what if your dream is stupid? Yeah. <laughs> and my dream was stupid. It was misguided. That's not what I was supposed to do. So I did that band for about, uh, I don't know, three years or something. And then um, then I got, this is a weird part. I got in this, I met this singer who was amazing. Mm-hmm. And she was just, I mean, just an amazing singer. Uh, and we put this band together. And the original idea was it was going to be, I was really into the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and this is like the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first album. Right. Which is actually pretty cool. Right. Um, it's really And I was really into, yeah, really funky and aggressive, and nobody yeah. else was doing that. And we were, I was also really into the Pretenders, especially the Pretenders' first album. So we wanted to be kind of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers with a little Pretenders and a female lead singer. Mm-hmm. And she was a, just an amazing singer. And the we put this band together, and... It caught on really fast, yeah. and it caught on in non-punk rock circles. Okay. Like we were getting big gigs right away, and A and R people from labels started sniffing around and stuff. And it was, it was weird. I'd never experienced this before. Mm-hmm. And right as it looked like we were, might be able to get signed, or there was some kind of there was some action happening. Yeah, they um, they did two things. First, they called the two worst words in the music business: band meeting. nothing ever good ever happened in a band meeting right so they called this meeting and they said we think all the songs should be copyrighted written in all four of our names because the drummer adds 
he writes his drum parts, so that's songwriting. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about writing or publishing. I didn't know anything about the business. No one did right back then. No internet, you know. Um, so I was like, okay, I, I want to be a team player. So they got me to sign this piece of paper, and then a minute later, after I signed the piece of paper, they kicked me out. Oh gosh! Because they decided they wanted to play kind of a jazz rock fusion avant-garde kind of stuff with outside time signatures. And uh, I remember I should have seen it coming because the drummer only owned like f- five records and three of them were by Rush. <laughs> so I was, I, I missed that cue. Um, so that was kind of it for that bit. Well, they, they fired me and they got a, a way like better guitar player than me mm-hmm. and started playing this kind of outside music. And I think they lasted another year and that was it. Cause it's not a kind of music that very many people are interested in listening to, and certainly it's not going to get played on the radio, and record labels aren't going to sign that. So that went away, but it was I was heartbroken. Looking back now, I'm a little embarrassed that I had such a dramatic reaction. But um, I think that's kind of natural, too, though, in a sense, where you get that close, and then, oh. Yeah, I was finally going to get you know get this big thing, and then it, they kicked me out. But um, after I recovered from my little pity party, I realized I'm going to be a songwriter now, and I'm I'm not going to go form another band. I'm going to write a bunch of songs, and then I'm going to put a band together around my songs instead of the other way around. And that was really the beginning of me slowly transforming into being a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sat alone and wrote songs and demoed them on a little four-track or whatever for okay. about a year and put t- together a band f- a- around those songs. And I had kind of I was starting to feel disillusioned with punk rock because really for me, this is just my take, most of the cool punk rock that really spoke to me was over by the mid-80s. Sure. Um, and, and so I... Relatively speaking, what's the time period of this all happening? I think I got kicked out of that band in 87. Okay, so we're just on the edge of... Kyle's almost born. Yeah! <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> that hurts. Um, yeah. Anyway, I put together uh, a band based around my songs, and it was much rootsier and more old-fashioned. I was really into Rolling Stones, John Hyatt, and getting into more uh, the beginnings of this kind of alt-country scene and things like that. Um, Steve Earle, uh, stuff like that was what I was influenced by at the time. So it was much more songwriter-based and uh, less of the the dazzle of of punk rock, I guess. yeah, much closer to the, you know, the stylings that the Okima Prophets do now. I guess. I mean, compared to comparatively to punk is what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess so. Um and and that band was um not overly successful just kind of as usual for me kind of like me- mediocre uh like we wouldn't be headlining on a weekend, but maybe we could get a Wednesday night headline. And sure. If we were playing on a weekend, we were opening for someone. Mm-hmm. Um and I had a lucky break cuz in 87 I had met this woman who had just opened the fine line. Yeah. And uh, we've been together ever since 30 years, which in the music business, it's like dog years. We've been together 210 years because no one, <laughs> no marriages last in the music business. Yeah, all right. So um, she owned the fine line for the first couple of years and then sold out her interest in that. And she was the founding owner. It was her, her baby, her idea. Okay. And she had gotten a, a good relationship with Prince going because he loved the fine line and he played there several times. And- who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, it was, such a cool venue. When it first opened, it was amazing. I mean, till Tuesday played there and the Cowboy Junkies. I mean, they had a, it was a lot different than it is now. It was a yeah. totally happening club. Well, they've had and so many ownerships now. Yeah, now it's, it's, it's yeah, to it's a tough business. That it's, is. yeah. But she sold out her interest in that and Prince called her up. 
and said, I want, I loved what you did at the fine line. I want you to build me a club. So she did. She built him a club called Glam Slam. And um, I used to get some opening gigs there because she was, we were living together. Yeah. It's not, not everything in the music business is based on merit. <laughs> um, so I was doing a gig at Glam Slam, this Prince club that she had. I forget who we were opening for. We were opening for some band and um, a big producer named David Z, David Rivkin, mm-hmm. was in the audience, um, and he was very hot at the time. He had done the fine, gotten pr- producer of the year, a record of the year for for, for fine young cannibals, and he had uh, he co-wrote and produced the song "Kiss" for Prince, and did a sure. bunch of engineering on Purple Rain. Just he was the guy. As he engineered the song "Funky Town," which started the whole Minneapolis <laughs> sound. Yeah, genius. And he was in the crowd, and I'm paraphrasing, but. Uh, he knew my wife and he said, boy, I really like these, these guys. Uh, I'd like to meet him. And she's, Oh, that's, that's my husband. So, Mm -hmm. um, I met him and to make a long story short, he kind of gave me the talk of like, your band's okay and you're okay, but your songs are really good. And that's what you should be focusing on. And you should give me a tape. This being the early nineties, very early nineties. Yeah. Give me a tape of some of your songs because I'm a producer and i I'm always looking for great songs to put on records. Yeah. And what I heard was, you're never going to get a record deal. <laughs> I didn't know what publishing was, or I didn't any. I didn't know any of that stuff. I knew it would be good to get a song on somebody's record, but I didn't know like why it would be good or right anything. So I gave him a cassette, and he picked one of the songs, and he put it on Kenny Wayne Shepherd's first album that he was producing in Memphis, and right. he had me play guitar on it, and that record went gold, and that was that for me. That's and that that was like what. I know Riverside, I read, yeah. was the first one. And mm-hmm. then was there another one? Is just that one. Just that on that record. Uh, that record ended up going platinum eventually over time. And um, that's when I started getting it, you know, that this is what I should be doing. Um, mm-hmm. Not focusing on being a rock star, but focusing on being in the service industry, helping rock stars with the writing. Uh, shortly after that, I had a gig in Fargo. And Johnny Lang was the opener, and he was only 13. He'd only been playing for nine months. But it's crazy to me. It's crazy. Uh, 13. It was, and he was just as good then, really, in essence, yeah. as he ever was. Um, and we got to be friends, and he kind of thought I was a big deal because I had written for Kenny Wayne Shepherd. And I was like, dude, I think you could be way bigger than Kenny Wayne Shepherd. So I introduced yeah. him to David, and uh, I ended up writing a bunch of songs with and for Johnny. And we ended up doing two double platinum records on A&M that David produced. Yeah. Uh, really, the Lie to Me one and then the Wander This World one. And uh, I was able to parley that into a publishing deal with Lieber and Stoller Music, the two guys that had written Jailhouse Rock and Hound Dog and stuff. Oh, and wow. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, just being able to sit so, and talk yeah, with them. Yeah, have that. Hear stories. Um, that back and forth has to be insane. That was cool. That was a four-year deal, and that was the that deal was the day I quit my last day job. Okay, okay. so that would be like ninety four, five, some four, three, something like that. Anyway, um, okay. and I was a full-time songwriter for people all through the nineties. Um, sure. So my one question around this is: I was watching um on YouTube. They put the uh, Minneapolis like public television specials that they've done mm-hmm. on and I was watching those and you mentioned um in there that you were talking with uh Paul Westerberg from the replacements at one point and he told you about your songwriting well you're uh, some not verbatim but something along the lines of 
Well, the way you talk is pretty funny. Just write how you talk. Yeah, he and was encouraging kinda... me to quit being so imitative. Okay, and that's find my own voice. Just write songs from my own perspective. And do you do you remember then, like, based off of that story, where in relation that to the publishing deal that ended the day job? Took jobs? me years to figure out what he was talking about. He must have told me that in 1985. Okay, four or five. Because and I didn't figure out what he was talking about until the 90s. And the minute I started doing that things changed yeah well i i i'm sure and as i was watching that i was just like well i just i really want this timeline i want to know how long that process was to come to fruition yeah and hence in hindsight it seems too long too long and i i i've always been a slow learner but once i learn something i learn it for life and uh it took me a long time like with the replacements they were always my favorite band but it took me years to figure out why they were my favorite band because a lot of people like them because of the drunken antics. And I, you know, I got sober when I was 18. So the drunken antics were, if anything, kind of boring for me. Right. You know, I wasn't shocked or offended or like, oh, that's so cool. I was like, okay, they're having that night. They're going to play <laughs> Deep Purple covers all night. Um, yeah. And then I was like, well, I really like his guitar playing. I really like his voice. But it took me years to figure out that the songs were the reason that I loved that band so much and then it took me another time period to figure out how to write my way um but then once i figured it out things started happening pretty quickly and have continued yeah the myth about the ten thousand hours how much time do you think you spent writing music that you wouldn't call up to par before you hit that point Twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. <laughs> but again, I as I'm a slow learner. I'm I'm very uh like stubborn, which mm-hmm. is a good quality if you're headed in the right direction. But it's mm-hmm. a very bad quality if you're headed in the wrong direction. Right. Right. And and that's a interesting point because I know in my observations of being a student at IPR, having you as my production teacher and whatever random emails or conversations we had on the side outside of classes, the observation I always made was even with digital recording or whatever it be, if you had a Colt Lieb in the room who was really proficient in editing Pro Tools or Chad Hellman's, it did not matter what sort of accomplishments you had made. You have an undying willingness to continue to learn from people. Yeah, always. And I've just, you know, that's something that I think cannot be forgotten about anyone working in music or, you know, studio out playing is the willingness to learn from other people, regardless of who More than willingness, like eagerness. The best thing about success for me is that I get to work with people who are better at doing something or a bunch of things or everything than Mm -hmm. me. And then you get to steal their knowledge because luckily people in music are pretty open People don't have a lot of trade secrets. If you ask an engineer, how'd you get that snare sound? They're not going to be like, most of them aren't going to be like, I'm not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. They're eager because they you know, spent hours figuring it out. They spent hours they figuring it out. You the trade and, and most of the people in their lives don't want to hear anything about what plugins they use. You know what I mean? No. I can't sit there and talk to um, my wife about my uh, mastering chain. You know, she doesn't yeah. want to hear about it. So when someone does want to hear about it, I think people are, people are like, really? You care? <laughs> and so they're very generous with their knowledge. I mean, a bunch of people around here, I've learned a lot. A friend of mine named Chris Kimsey mm-hmm. produced Six Stones albums and a bunch of other amazing stuff. Uh, London-based producer. 
He's been a big influence. David Z has been a huge influence. Yep. Around here, John Fields. Yes. I've learned so much from that guy, and he's very, just insanely generous with his knowledge. In the beginning, my tutor was Dick Shopto. Yep. Um, I've learned a lot from working with Jason Orris at Terrarium. Yep. Um, and then writing-wise, I learned so much from all the co-writing I've done in Nashville and L.A., um, those people that that complete game changer yeah well i remember you know being in one of your classes and you were discussing songwriting and you were like well i under i believe this is kind of what you told us while i was writing songs i knew how to write songs i learned how to write songs then i went to nashville and i learned how to write hit songs <laughs> i believe that's what you told me and i don't think that was like a measurement of i write only hits but it was one of those things where it's like they're process and how they go about it and how serious they are was probably i'm assuming eye-opening well it was uh working in nashville in the beginning i was terrified i was like god if these people figure out that i'm just this aging jewish punk rocker from minnesota they're gonna not gonna want to work with me um but they did want to work with me and they were super cool i think what i learned is that songwriting doesn't have to be this precious thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, I, oh, I, I have to only write about a personal experience that I'm in at the moment and it has to be 4 a.m. and there has to be this kind of incense burning and stuff like that. These yeah. people get up every day and write songs and those songs can be just as hard hitting. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so um, it, it, it was tough to, I had to go somewhere else to learn about real songwriting because Although there are some great songwriters that have come out of Minnesota, Bob Dylan, Prince, Dan Wilson, mm -hmm. there's not a songwriting culture or community here to speak of. And I don't think that's a criticism of Minnesota. I think that's true of most places other than L.A. Nash or Nashville, mm -hmm. partly because nobody's being paid to do it. Right. And partly because the musical culture here is about bands and sounds and styles. It's not about songs. Okay. The, the press here, and I could be opening myself up to criticism here, but um, I'll say it anyway. I don't think there's a lot of, there's an attitude here sometimes that celebrates uh, indie-ishness and amateurness over professionalness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes that's cool because I, God knows there's a lot of music I like that's i mean the replacements or you know to an extent billy eilish i love it that her and her brother just did that whole record but good great music is great music wherever it comes from and i don't think that there's there's just not a lot of people in minneapolis today sitting around trying to write the next pop song for or country song for x artist x if you want to do that people go to nashville to do it and i think there's an attitude here that that kind of writing is somehow less than yeah than Johnny Solomon writing great songs for Communist Daughter. Yeah. He's another great songwriter from here. Truly, oh, truly great. But, um, so I had to go somewhere else for that. Sure. Um, and I'm glad that I did because, you know, look, man, I just like great songs. I don't care where they come from. Mm -hmm. I don't care, you know, if they come from on top of a mountain or out of someone's butt. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Writing a, a great song. I don't care what their motivations were. Yeah. I don't care if it's autobiographical. I don't care if it's true. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's your diary. I just, a great lyric, a great melody, a great beat. Um, 
wherever that comes from is fine by me and whatever style it is in is fine by me. Yeah, as long as it gets there. As long as it hits me. Yeah. When did you start transitioning from just songwriter to producing and working in studios and Well, that was engineering even so. Kind of late coming actually. And again it it wasn't cuz things were going so great. At the end of the 90s, Johnny Lang made a big career shift, and I had way too many of my eggs in the old Johnny Lang basket. I didn't realize at the time. But um, Johnny moved to L.A., started working with all new people, and I was kind of sitting here going, what just happened? Mm -hmm. So I had learned a little bit about engineering because I had to make, if I wrote a song and I was trying to get some artists to cut it, I had to do a decent demo of it. It didn't have to be sonically perfect, but it had to be weird and cool and sexy and interesting to get them to cut it so i'd been working on a four track and then i worked on an eight track eight track quarter inch fostex (laughs) and then i had this horrible eight channel digital recorder like all in one yeah yep other thing was a piece of crap but you know you make it do what you what you want to make it do there's a moment when we were doing johnny lang's second album the one of this world album and i they brought me in they cut four of my songs on the record and we were going in to do this song, and it was at this great studio in town in Minneapolis here that's no longer here called CD Underbelly. Okay. It's on Washington. And Steve Cropper was on guitar. This is one of the greatest R&B guitarists of all time. Uh, co-wrote Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. I mean, yeah, he's just a legend. So he's on guitar. And Richie Hayward from Little Feet is on drums, one of my favorite bands of all time, one of my favorite drummers of all time. And this great Memphis bass player named david smith who i love and mm-hmm. we're going to cut one of my songs and so david is producing david z is producing and he plays the demo i had done with johnny of this song and i had done it with my drum machine was an alesis hr16 yeah which is just a piece of crap that they had back in the day but i made it do something weird and cool with the timed delay and it was just it was cool Mm-hmm. We all sat there and listened to the demo, and I'm dying inside, like, oh, God, they're going to hate my stupid lo-fi demo. These are real professional musicians. <laughs> Steve Cropper stood up and said, well, we can cut it, but we're never going to beat that demo. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I thought, maybe I could be a producer. Yeah. Maybe it's not just a job that unicorns can do. Maybe I can do it. Um, so when Johnny uh, uh, moved to L.A., I basically just put up a website on this kind of newish thing called the internet mm-hmm. and lied and said I was a record producer. Yeah. I had a Digi O O two Pro Tools five. Yeah. Version five. An Avalon channel strip thing, mic pre EQ and compressor. Compressor sucked in that thing. Didn't do anything. Um <laughs> and and a AT forty thirty three mic. That was my studio. Okay. In the laundry room. Nice. <sighs> Not nice. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, I'm a producer. Hire me to produce your record. And this kid looked me up on the internet from Oklahoma, and he said, I really like what you do with Johnny Lang, and I want to work with you. He was only 18, he, but he had the gumption to hop on a plane and come up here, which I thought was pretty impressive for an 18-year-old. Yeah. And we wrote four songs and did little demos of them. And I found him a manager, Johnny Lang's old manager, and we got him signed to an indie label out of New Jersey called Shanaki, mm-hmm. bunch of criminals. But they <laughs> gave us a, I gave us a budget, and a month later, I'm sitting in Dick Shopto's basement. Dick engineered, I produced, and we had Stevie Ray Vaughan's band playing. Yeah, Double Trouble. <clears throat> mm-hmm. 
And uh, so we did this record. It wasn't a great record by any means. A couple of cool things on it. Uh, but it said produced by Kevin Bow. And after that, I, I wasn't a liar anymore. I yeah. really was a record producer. I wasn't a good one, but I was one. And that's how, uh, that's, uh, that's how it started, with a lie. <laughs> yeah, and then from there, it kind of snowballed into what it is now. Yeah, gradually opening up to more and more things. Uh, Dick was my engineer. We did a million records in his studio together. And then I started putting my own studio together. And the last bridge for me was, um, God, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. I started mixing my own stuff. Yeah. Uh, before that, like I remember, I, I the, re, the way I learned to mix was I had a friend of mine who managed the Meat Puppets. Mm-hmm. And he said, you want to mix the new Meat Puppets record? Because he, he was a lawyer, not a musician. He didn't know that. I was completely unqualified for the gig. And again, I lied and said, absolutely. Yes. I'd love to do that. I got off the phone and I called Colt and I was like, Colt, I'm in way over my head. You want to split this with me? And the money was pretty good. Mm -hmm. So we mixed this really cool Meat Puppets record. um, And basically, I was the edit guy because I'd gotten pretty good at editing. And there was a lot of editing to to do on that record. Um, And Colt really did the the most of the mixing. And... um, by the end of the record, but I sat and watched and learned, and there's no one better to learn from. And right. after that, all I'll say is I've never hired anyone to mix a record again yeah. that I produced. You actually, that Meat Puppets record, that was that was happening right when I was in IPR. Was it? I remember you mixing that. So what year was that? That must have been 0809. That sounds about right. Yeah, because I finished in 2010. Um, but I remember you bringing that in, and for me, the realization of what you were doing went straight directly back to Nirvana Unplugged, where that was my exposure to the meat puppets. Right. You know, and I was just like, whoa. It's kind of big crazy. time. It's a cool it's... record, too, and Colt Lieb mixed the hell out of it. He did a really great job. That's another person where I've learned as much from him. Everything. Yeah, yeah, I've learned as much from him as I have from anybody in the world. Yeah. Yeah, he's also, besides being a great doer, he's a great teacher. He is a great teacher. Yeah. Um, I, I had plenty of classes. I think my, one of my favorite classes at IPR was his editing class and life changing. I'm lucky to be his friend. That's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a few gaps in here that I'm kind of interested in. Um, me too. I don't remember though. (laughs) Right. So when you were working, at what point and how does Edit James get a hold of your tunes? That was a lucky break. There was this guy I barely knew. I don't know how I knew him. Yeah. But he was going to produce her record, and he hit me up for songs. Mm-hmm. So I sent him a few songs, and I never thought about it again. And months later, my phone rings, and it's this guy don't remember his name. I'm such a bad person. <laughs> and uh, he said, hey, Kevin, I got someone who wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And he puts her on the phone. And she's like, Kevin? I'm like, yeah. Kevin Bow? Yeah. This is Etta James. Man, you a bad mother. <laughs> yeah. and, she goes, and I was like, oh, my God, this really is Etta James. Yeah. Uh, and I remember she said, uh, she said, you write these songs? And I said, yeah. And she goes, man, you bringing it all back home just like the Rolling Stones. And my takeaway was, I've never heard anyone call them the Rolling Stones. White people are like the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. She's like the Rolling Stones. And then she goes, are you a white boy? (laughs) I said, not anymore, ma'am. Not anymore. I'm whatever you want me to be, Etta James. Well, we got to be friends. 
she cut four of my songs and that album won a Grammy and I'd go see her live when she was in town and she'd call me out and we'd, I'd go backstage and see her and I saw her in LA and we hung out a little bit. And yeah. She was a very, very funny, very funny person. Yeah. yeah. And like some of the tracks on that, you know, there's the blues is my business and trust yourself. And I remember this leads into one of the questions I actually want to ask about kind of your processes a songwriter and now you have the Okima Prophets which you cut your own songs with uh Peter Anderson you know yeah, whoever's Steve Price, whoever's, whoever's going to play yeah. on it I don't know that I'll ever do that again though I I'm kind sure, of happy in a my little bit. role as a writer producer I'm happy to step aside and let sure younger people do live the, shows and stuff like that I sure trying to grow old with some kind of dignity here sure i well what my question was so you have songs i've seen you play trust yourself live with different bands i've seen you play um obviously you recorded like leaving to stay that was on the johnny lang album and you have several cuts that have been on some of these bigger albums but then you came back and you recorded versions that for me, the Leaving to Stay version that Johnny Lang did was cool, but when I listened to the two, I actually prefer the one you did. Oh, thank you. To that one. Um, I don't know. It just feels more real to me, um, personally, at least. I like both versions, but for me, just like the pacing of how you're singing it and how you decided to go into it felt a little less organized than what he did in like a really, really wonderful way where it felt more natural. Um, I think ours is more stonesy. The big difference is I free. yeah I played it in open G, and okay. Cropper played that in standard tuning, um, and so that kind of defined how the song went. Sure, I think. that I suppose that makes sense. But how about uh, that solo that Johnny Lang played on my version? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I that mean, was like two takes, just and it's so out there and just that was amazing. Kid's voice is well, I shouldn't say kid, um, older than me. Yeah, I remember but, the day when he walked and he said, "I'm not Kid Johnny Lang anymore." And I was like, and it's over. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But uh, my, my question is, how do you decide of all these songs you've written that have been used or utilized by other people, when you did decide to go and record them for yourself, how did you decide these are the ones? I'm only interested in recording the ones that I can sing with my limited voice. Okay. Um, I did Leaving to Stay before Johnny did. He heard my version and played on it. And then he was like, I like this song. I want to cut my own version of it. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Um, yes, please. <laughs> but m most of the songs I write, uh, I wouldn't be interested in recording myself because I couldn't s sing them. Okay. So I, I just, back when I was still recording my own stuff, which I don't know that I'll ever do again. I won't say never, but I'm, yeah. I'm not in the mood now. Um, I would just do it if it's a song where I feel like, oh, I, I want to sing that. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a voice thing phenomenal I, i've i figured it could be anything as simple as that to anything as complex as there is like not a complex no reason. no no uh no 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 it's 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 just i'm limited as to what i can sing yeah so um credibly <laughs> yeah self-awareness does help no awareness um, of one's limitations is well as important or more than a, awareness of one's strength right at what point in that conversation, when an artist is working through and they are aware of their limitations, you can go and workshop and get better at things. But at what point do you decide, okay, this is no longer a limitation and you try? What would you say? Because that's... What would I say to an artist? Yeah. That I'm working with? Yeah. 
Well, because you're right. You have to be aware of those limitations. When I look at an artist that I'm working with, it's actually kind of crass in a way. I look at them like a piece of meat. Mm -hmm. um, I go, if anyone's going to buy this record by this artist, why are they going to buy it? What I, Really, the question is, what are we selling here? Mm -hmm. And let's try to bring out everything that's unique and amazing about this artist. Let's put that up front. Mm -hmm. And let's not focus on the areas that they're not unique or strong. Yeah, right. And it sounds like a self-evident truth and something that we shouldn't even have to say, but I think it's very hard if you're the artist to think that way about yourself. Mm -hmm. So in such a crass kind of transactional uh, analysis. So, but I think a problem with some artists is that, well, you know, and I'll go on a limb and say this about Johnny Lang. I always thought from the minute I saw him when he was 13, that Johnny was a phenomenal guitar player. There was never going to be any problem there. Mm -hmm. Anyone who says he's not a great guitar player is just uh, someone who's jealous of his guitar play. Yes. I knew he was a great singer. Just that gift was given to him. He was a phenomenal singer when he was 13. He's a phenomenal singer now. Just He just did that. He just could just do it. I also knew he was a phenomenal live performer. Mm -hmm. He was exciting on stage. Very exciting. You couldn't take your eyes off him. But I never thought he was particularly uniquely gifted as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I thought we wrote some good songs together. One of my favorite songs I've ever been a part of, Breaking Me, mm -hmm. that was a true co-write. People are like, when you write that stuff with Johnny, I mean, you just wrote it and let him put his name on it. Absolutely not. He had all the music for Breaking Me. And I said was, what you think is the bridge should be the chorus, and what you think is the chorus should be the bridge. And then I wrote more, uh, most of the lyric. Mm -hmm. But he, melody and music, that was him. That was a true collaboration. And it's a really a, an amazing song. Yeah. Top five hit. But as far as Johnny starting a song by himself and controlling it or writing a song by himself without a strong co-writer, I just never heard it. That's just my take on it. And that might be self-serving on my part because I'm the guy, uh, I was the, that guy. Yeah. But um, I think a lot of artists then, uh, they focus on a, maybe not their strongest thing just because they want to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And like supposing you have a bum leg. Well, you might want to be a track and field star, but probably you ain't going to be. Probably not the right call. Yeah. And so I think it's hard because, you know, um, you as a producer, you want to put the best stuff about someone up front. And then sometimes the not best stuff, you can work on it and make it way, way better. Well, right. And the end result is whenever you're working with an artist, you want them to be successful. It's good for everybody involved if they're successful in what they do after that. As long as they're happy done. with it, you know. Especially if they're happy with it. Yeah. But that's what's cool about Billie Eilish. She is so young, but she knows who she is. She's like, um, if she was, you notice that there were very few female artists at the Grammys that were not dressed in a bustier and, you know, yeah, right. tights or whatever people, you know, these, these things that people wear. I, if she did that, she was like, no, I want to be a sex symbol. I think she'd fail. Yeah. So it's cool that she doesn't want to because that's not what she's supposed to be doing. She's supposed to be doing exactly what she's doing. Right. Smart. It's definitely smart. Usually how I round these things up and we're towards the, we're turning that last corner here, is I like to ask two questions at the end. 
And one is, well, what are you listening to now? What's in your, what are you streaming? What are you, uh, yeah. what's in your CD player, record player? Um, of new music or old music? Anything. God, my iPod shuffle is, uh, or iPod, my f- <laughs> shuffle on my phone is so huge and weird. Um, the other day I was looking at what, who, what artists do I have the most stuff? Mm-hmm. And some of the leaders were, um, man, I have a shit ton of James Brown. Yeah. I love me some James Brown. Well, in James Brown, there's a shit ton of stuff there to is. have. Uh, James Brown, I have a ton of uh, Prince. Mm-hmm. I have a ton of replacements. I have a ton of Bob Dylan. So a lot of Minnesota music. Um, other stuff that always makes me happy when it comes on is um, lately soft rock of the 70s and disco. So mm-hmm. a lot of Bee Gees, Donna Summer, um, and uh, stuff like that. And then a lot of Bread and Fleetwood Mac and other, uh, like, the yeah, Lately, I've on a, been on a fetish for Seals and Crofts. Okay. Um, Summer Breeze, man. Yeah. Check out that track. I mean, I heard it all the time growing up, and I didn't pay any attention to it. And now I hear it, and I'm like, these people are genius. Is it the Summer Breeze makes me feel fine? <clears throat> Listen oh, yeah. to it once. The oh, recording. Yeah. No, I... Besides the song and the performance, the recording is amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, a lot of Roxy music. And then of new stuff... Uh, Billie Eilish, Lizzo, uh, mm-hmm. because it's fun and makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and uh, what else? I, 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 I don't remember a lot of the names of the bands because sometimes I'll just go on Spotify and, you know, and, and let it do its thing. You might find this interesting. So I've done, this is now my fifth interview like this. Uh-huh. And I, whenever I ask this question... I find the trend of people saying, well, I used to know all the songs and the tracks and all this different stuff, but now on Spotify, I just... Let it flow. I just, I let it flow, or I pick this song and I hear it once and I save it as a liked song, and then I never remember the title or who it is. I just keep going back to it. Yeah. It's, it's kind it's of interesting, sad. that trend. It's, well, yeah, I think uh, so. Lucius. Mm-hmm. Lucius, I like that. The Weeknd. Oh, The Weeknd. Yeah. Is, yeah. That's super trippy. Um, I've been on a Sly and the Family Stone jag lately. Yeah. Um, I haven't been listening to a lot of uh, like rock and roll. Yeah. Lately, I don't hear a lot of new rock and roll that I um that that I get super excited about. I I want to. Right. So, question about that. Because I find that interesting and just hearing kind of your experience in the replacement scene and, you know, all that different stuff. I hear a lot of people say, and for me, I usually get a little turned off by it, but I hear people say, oh, they just don't make them like they used to. Uh, And I think it might be true to some extent. The trap of nostalgia. Right, right. Well, I I saw on one of your interviews too last night that I was when I was doing my homework. Um, you mentioned everybody's favorite music ever is like <laughs> when they were fifteen to twenty four or whatever. That's the people That's talk the about the golden age, yeah. yeah. And the golden age for everyone happens to be when they were fifteen or twelve and they started listening to music, and then right around twenty four, they're out of college, they get married and start having kids and stuff like that, and then they stop listening to new music, and so the golden age for them. 
is, is that, that time. It doesn't have anything to do with the music. Because any time, including right now, there's great music and there's crappy music. People talk about, oh, the 60s were so great. I can play you music from the 60s that's so unspeakably horrific. <laughs> or the 70s. I love 70s music, but listen to Billy Don't Be a Hero and tell me that's a great song. And that was a huge hit. Oh, you know? That's hilarious. Or Terry Jack's Seasons in the Sun. You know what I mean? That's a horrible song. Come on. No offense to Mr. Jacks. <laughs> that's great. So I just try and be more universal about it. Um, and I refuse to get caught up in the in the nostalgia trap that a lot of people my age get in that says everything about them and nothing about art or the world you know these people are like i miss tape and today's music sucks it's like really what's the last new music you listened to i think the correlation would be astounding if you could get an actual answer to that yeah um yeah that's that's really entertaining i uh i always struggle people you know they will say they don't make them like they used to. Back in my day, this was blah, blah, blah. And I have people my age who say that about music now. I'm 30. And there's sure. officially now people my age who will, you know, man, the 90s were the best and, you know, whatever, or 2000. Nothing is the best and nothing no, is the worst. No, and I, I, I truly think you just have to be willing to look for it. And uh, and be open to it. Like, okay, let's talk about Billie Eilish for a second. Mm-hmm. Um. On Saturday Night Live, a few weeks ago, her and her brother did a song called I Love You. And it was just him playing acoustic guitar and those two singing in harmony. And I'm sorry, if you didn't feel something from that, I was floored. I thought it was so amazing. Mm -hmm. The writing, the performance, everything. And people are like, oh, they just make their music on a laptop. Blah, 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 blah. Well, they didn't right there. Yeah, number one, who cares? But number two, not that song. That was acoustic guitar. Female lead vocal, brother, male vocal harmony. That's all there was, and it was perfect. It's perfect songwriting. And the challenge of writing a good song called I Love You, you know how many I Love Yous there have been? That's like the most generic title in the world, and they still nailed it. Just ripped it. So everyone just needs to shut up and listen. Yeah, everybody could do a lot to do that. That would help everyone a lot. Um, So the Look at Corey Wong. Look what Corey oh, yeah. Wong is doing. That's a whole, I wouldn't say it's a new thing, but it's a bunch of old things put together into a new thing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of funky, it's not based on songwriting per se, yep. but it's not, that's not, that's a part of it. It's based on instrumental prowess. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like reminds me of the jazz rock fusion movement of the 70s and a little bit of the jam band movement of the last you know, 20 or 30 years put together in this new way. But he's getting huge rooms full of people, young people, that are freaking out on someone's ability, musical ability. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's yeah. no, there's no uh, push-up bras. There's, you know, yeah. those are they're push-up bros. <laughs> you know, they're, the only thing going on is instrumental ability and funkiness. Mm-hmm. And he's raising the roof. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... And, I, and so if you say, well, yeah, nobody can play, nobody's good at playing their instruments anymore. They don't put in the time. Really? Yeah. Well, you're a big old dum-dum because go look at what Corey Wong is doing. Well, yeah. And then there's there's stuff like that. And Corey Wong, as soon as you say that, I start to think um, there's a guitar player in Chicago named Isaiah Sharkey who uh, 
check them out when you have a minute. Just go on YouTube and search for Isaiah Sharkey. There's so many of these different guitar players where if we're talking about pure skill of playing, sure. where either they're on Instagram and they're just playing like clips that they're doing over a looper pedal, which isn't super complex, but it's some of the technicality that these people are playing with. It kind of blows my mind. Yeah, but, but you got to find it. You got to find it. You got to be willing to look for it. And, you know, I just, I, it drives me nuts when people say there's just all pop music is awful. Or even if you call out an artist and you say, well, this is awful and it's generic, it's just like, well, say what you want to about young Mr. Bieber, but he's not going away because there's something in there that we're not aware of. Plus, the record he did with, uh, Five years ago or whatever. Yeah, with, uh, Purpose album. Yeah, that was one of the best records of the last 10 years. It's so I good. don't know how much of it had to do with him. I, I I think a lot of it had to do with Diplo and, and Skrillex and their contributions, which were amazing. Yes. But I love that record. I love that record. You right. know, it's so I just good. think people need to open their minds and, and listen. And, all, and yeah, and maybe a lot of the music that you're looking for might not be in the top 40. Mm-hmm. But so what? You know, so dig a little deeper. My thing is that, look, I love The Replacements. Two of my favorite bands of all time, Replacements and Led Zeppelin. But, man, I'm rarely in a mood to go back and listen to that stuff. You know why? Mm -hmm. You don't have any idea at my age how many times I've heard all my favorite Led Zeppelin songs. There's no new information in there. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, I'll be in a weird mood and I'll go back and listen to Led Zeppelin or The Replacements. But I... I need something new. I need something that I haven't heard a million, 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 million times. Right. And I think I think with music and for me, where I really initially realized this is a thing in life that I just love, I started traveling, like actually leaving Minnesota in 2015. I'd never been on a plane before then. But seeing somewhere completely new is the most refreshing thing ever. And when you bring it back to songs finding new music and hearing something for the first time that just, you know, floors you. Totally. That is, that can make you feel new again. For me, it's refreshing and it can energize me. Oh, it totally does. It's, it's Especially if it's music that you are lucky enough to be working on. Like, there's a Communist Daughter record coming out in the fairly near future, I want to say in the next few months, that I did, mm-hmm. uh, that I produced and, and mixed. And it's it's some of my favorite music I've heard Mm-hmm. In years, it's the writing. Johnny Solomon just hit a whole new level in his writing, and it's so weird and beautiful and different and amazing. And I'm so excited for that record to come out. Yeah, the constant creative process has to be that over and over again, especially when you're lucky enough to work with you know good artists. Where it's this is completely new. It's refreshing. Um, There's I, an artist as a singer I started working with about a year and a half ago. She's from Kentucky. She lives in Nashville now. We started writing together, and we really hit it off. And she's 24. I always make the same joke. I, I always say, man, you don't own a record made after 1974. She's all about Aretha and Ray Charles and yeah. that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, she's a you know Southern fried R&B singer. Mm-hmm. And um, we did a record, six, uh, as they used to say in the day, we did six sides yeah. at Terrarium with my dream studio band, Noah Levy on drums. Ian Allison on bass, Jeff Victor on keyboards, me on guitar, and her singing. We did it 99% of it live. I overdubbed some horns and gospel singers. Mm-hmm. And um, I just last week went to Nashville and uh, 
we I played acoustic guitar and she sang and we went to the president of Warner Brothers Nashville his office with all like six or seven of his A and R people there and played these songs mm-hmm. for them and they kind of like I don't know if you call it interview or an audition or what showcase whatever the word is these days but it went really really well and if that ends up happening with Warner's or whoever that's going to be an amazing record yeah this, this girl her name is Jesse Key and she sings like crazy nobody knows who she is yet right now but um, yeah. She is drop dead amazing. Yeah. God, that's got to be fun for you. And that's ex- really fun. Ex- exhilarating, I'm sure. Gratifying more like it. I don't know if I'm old. I'm too old to ever be exhilarated anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take satisfaction. What, what I have to look forward to. Yeah. If you're Loss lucky. of exhilarization. <laughs> Side effect of life. <laughs> that's true. Awesome. Well, the last question I always ask, and this one might be the most difficult question for you, and I have... A favorite myself of yours but if you had to pick one song of yours to represent your catalog which is a ridiculous question with your catalog what would it be how would you want it represented well that answer is going to change every day but since i'm always into um what's happening right now you know yeah. um this song that jesse and i wrote just a few weeks ago all i have is a cheesy little you know midi demo of it now but we played it for these people in Nashville at Warner Brothers. Um, and it's called They Don't Make Love Like They Used To. Mm-hmm. Right now, that's my favorite song in the world. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Ask me tomorrow, it could be something else. But man, the way she sings that song, just it just kills me. Mm-hmm. There's this bit at the end of the chorus where she goes, they don't make love like they used to not for people like me. And it just breaks my heart. (laughs) Every time she sings that line, it just breaks my heart. That's, that's one of those old things where you try and create a new, I don't, this doesn't do it justice at all, but you try and create like a new cliche that's brand new. Exactly. And it's, that's what sticks. And God, that, that line's pretty heart wrenching on its, especially when she sings it just on its foundation of hearing it. It is. Um, wow. That's great. Um, I, uh, just for funsies at the end of the interview here, you want to guess what my, uh, representation was going to be? Of my stuff? Of your stuff. Is, uh, is it me singing the song it's, or somebody it's else? It's you singing the song. In Too Deep. In Too Deep is close. It's in, I think, the same period maybe, but I was going to go Falling Satellites. Oh, I love that song. That's, I still love that song. That song, I love it. I think, uh, I think you played it at IPR in like. Uh, I think so. Back in the old building, like acoustic once, um, and and I think you were kind of recording it and showing it to us, and I was like, oh gosh. Wrote that song when my cat died. Yeah. My cat Lulu. But now, whenever I hear the version of my band doing it, all I hear is the sibilance on my vocal and how I would do that differently. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that sad? Well. You know, you know what they but say, song's you. never done. It's never complete. Never made a nickel off that song. Really? I know. Yeah. I thought that people were going to flip out. People did like it. I I had a nice moment where the first time I I played that song for Paul Westerberg, he was lying on that couch mm-hmm. over there, and it ended. I played him the mix. I had just mixed it. And he goes, Goosebumps, Kevin. Play it again. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was that's, like, that's the best this is a good day. Ever. Yeah, that was that was super cool. Well, that's great. Well, that's perfect. That I have everything I want. I appreciate you for taking the time and Thank you. going over that. This has been fun for me. Left to 